Hey, welcome everybody again to Bethany West Seattle. My name is Prentice and I get the privilege to be uh, the pastor here. And, uh, and I want to start a little bit different this morning, especially with uh, the week or, or the last several days that we've had uh, with what's happening in Ukraine, with Russia, and uh, just the sheer violence uh, and, and really evil that we have witnessed from afar. And so... Uh, with that said, uh, I believe that there's a lot of hope uh, and a lot of work that um, the church should be doing. Uh, not only just prayer, uh, but also uh, being a voice and being active in what it means to bring about reconciliation. But what we can do this morning is at the very least pray for what is happening. And I want to say something about prayer as well. And it's this. I know that oftentimes that prayer becomes a bit diminished because it ends up being used as an scapegoat to do nothing. When we see struggles or challenges or painful experiences, we just say to the other person, we'll pray for you. Or, you know, my thoughts are with you. My prayers are with you. Uh, but I don't want to uh, then say that prayer is unimportant because oftentimes it becomes used as an escape code to just do nothing. And so with that said, I want us to enter into this time of prayer, and I'll give some prompts. But know this, that prayer is actually really powerful, uh, and, and God hears our prayers. And my hope is that we as a community will come together to pray for others, even people we don't even know, believing that there is a Redeemer God that is listening and that God is on the move. And so can we go into the next few minutes of prayer believing that God is active and God is moving? Yes? I know, I know we're not a charismatic Pentecostal church, but I just want a little bit of affirmation as we go into this a moment of prayer, believing that God is moving and God is doing something. And so uh, let's all just bow our heads. And, and typically, if it wasn't because of this pandemic, we would group up, and we've done this before. But uh, just in the stillness of your own hearts, where you just close your eyes, uh, and, and I'll give a few prompts. And the first is this. Let's pray for the families in Ukraine that'll be, that are being torn apart by what's happening whether it's by a loss of life, whether it's because families are being split apart, whether it's injuries or, or whatever it is, let's just take a moment to pray for the families that are being torn apart right now for their safety, for them to be reunited again. That God will meet them right where they're at. We take a moment to pray for those that have lost loved ones due to the violence.
And I'm going to challenge us to pray an audacious prayer right now. Will you pray for the changing of hardened hearts? That there is no match for God. That God tears down walls. So God, would, so would we pray that the perpetrators would come to repentance and to change their ways? And I know that's an audacious prayer, but can we enter into a moment where we, where we pray for that in belief and in confidence? Finally, would you pray for whatever resolution looks like? Would you pray for the world leaders, for our own leaders in our own country, for the leaders in Ukraine, for the leaders in Russia, for the leaders in the surrounding countries? I know for many of us, what's happening is way above our own knowledge and expertise. And so may we pray that those that are in power, that have a voice, would stand up. God, we thank you that we can pray together as a community in one voice. And God, though we don't know all the ins and outs of what is happening in Ukraine, we do know that families are being torn apart. We do know that people are dying. People are being pushed out of their residence. We know that there's terror and violence and fear and uncertainty. God, would you intervene into those spaces and may people know that you are God. God, we pray for the world leaders that they would step up and do whatever's right, do whatever's good, do whatever's necessary to, to bring this evil injustice to an end. We pray for our own hearts. God, that our hearts would not go astray, that we wouldn't make up narratives about a particular people group, about Russians, about everyone in Russia. God, this is about one person, one regime, that we ask that you bring them into repentance. And we pursue justice, whether we know these people or not, whether it's in our own neighborhoods or not, through prayer, through being a voice, through giving of our generosity, of whatever is required of us. 
Give us that heart. Give us that spirit. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you. This morning's text comes from Job chapter 19. And, and this is the last chapter. This is the last, not the chapter of the book, but this is the last sermon uh, in Job. And next week is Lent, and we will uh, be entering into a study of the book of Mark. Uh, before we get there, I want to end uh, with, with Job. Although there's 42 chapters, we'll be in chapter 19 today, verse 25 to 27. And the word of the Lord says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. I want that to sink in just for a moment as we just got done praying for what's happening in Ukraine and the, and the terror that's been happening. I want us to just hear that once again. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That is the word of the Lord. The last several days, like you, I've been on the, online and just reading a bunch of news sources and uh, watching the news and reading and here are a few things that I came across around BBC and, and New York Times and other news sources. Uh, I'll just read a few. First, Ukraine's health minister said on Saturday, just yesterday, that 198 civilians have been killed in the Russian invasion, including three children. Another 11, uh, 1,100 civilians have been wounded, inc including 33 children. Scores of residents stood in line to pick up assault rifles at a distribution center in Kiev after President Zelensky called for volunteers to take up arms. And I don't know if you saw a picture that was going viral of a, of a woman named Julia. She's a teacher just in tears because she had to take up arms as a volunteer soldier in her hometown. Imagine you sign up to be a teacher and before you know it, you are a soldier. Lastly, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine enters its second day, thousands of refugees from the besieged nation are arriving in bordering countries by road and rail. Now again, myself included, I don't pretend to be a foreign policy expert. I don't pretend to know the ins and outs of war and and all these things, but as a follower of Jesus, and I hope that we can all speak to this and be aligned to this, that what we are seeing is not right, it's not good, and God actually has something to say about it. And again, we've heard several stories like these the last few days, and we can't help but for our hearts to ache. And, and maybe you're with me, and I feel the, the sense right now, even just sitting in your seats, that in the last week, we've just been sitting with the heaviness. We can't explain it. Uh, you know, we can't articulate it. But from what we've learned and what we've seen and what we've read and what we know, there's a sense of heaviness that is just tugging at our hearts. 
And as we have talked about Job, what we're really talking about is suffering, though not the main point of Job. And when, but when we talk about suffering, I bet each and every one of us in our lives, we've experienced a sense of suffering that we've, exp- that we've talked about in the last several weeks. And maybe this suffering that we've experienced has a lot to do with what's happening in the world, what's happening in Ukraine, perhaps what's happening in our own country for the last several years, particularly the last two years. Perhaps the suffering that we've experienced is within our own families and our own community is due to a particular person we voted for or someone we didn't vote for. And I don't know about you, but I have seen families and friends just become absolutely split apart because we've entered into, we've entered into such a, a polarizing climate. So maybe it's because of this pandemic and isolation. Or maybe the suffering and the pain and the sorrow that Job talks about, we resonate with, and it existed far beyond this pandemic or this last week. Maybe it's an illness or a broken relationship or a loss of a loved one or a loss of a job or even loss of a envisioned future a failed business venture, a loss because children have moved on and went out of the house or there's grievances or there's conflict in the homes or, or whatever it is, we've experienced a particular suffering that oftentimes is exemplified in the book of Job. And, and what makes it worse is that the emotions that fill our souls in these moments can, I would say, overwhelming. It feels overwhelming, and I would say at best. Have you ever felt oh, just overwhelmed? And, and again, not to just keep harping on the pandemic, but I don't know about you, but for the last two years, if you ask me to describe what I have been feeling between the pandemic and work and family and politics uh, in, in, in the season of racial reckoning, I would say, you know what, I just feel overwhelmed. And I would imagine that being or feeling overwhelmed is at best, the worst or at worst, it feels downright debilitating. The emotions we feel from our suffering, I would say that it is overwhelming at best, debilitating at worst. We don't know what to do. We don't know which way is left. We don't know which way is right. We are uncertain of our next steps. And so sometimes the best thing to do is nothing at all. We all know that that doesn't often work out either. And the problem is this. In these seasons of suffering, sorrow, grief, pain, whether, again, it's because of the state of the world or something in our own lives, we often allow a sense of hopelessness, negativity, pain, and hurt to not only have the last word, but to be the only word in our lives. In other words, what I'm saying is we live in a world of such absolutes. We've been conditioned to think in only binary terms and binary ways where everything is seen as mutually exclusive. Again, if you don't believe me, just look at the state of our world and of our nation and the political climate that we find ourselves in. We cut people out of our lives because they vote differently than us. I've even heard phrases uh, of people saying, if you're not for me, you are against me. We lost the ability to be civil. Again, I've seen friendships and families being torn apart because of these differences, because there is no space 
where people can disagree. There's no space where people can have a variety of different thoughts and perspectives and emotions. Because if I'm right, then you must be wrong if you disagree. And if you disagree, you are now the enemy. And when we live through these narrow lenses, we develop a difficult time looking at the grander picture of what God is doing in our lives. I mean, we are just conditioned to think in such binary ways. Where if I feel a sense of suffering or a sense of pain or a sense of loss, just like when people disagree with me, I just cut them out. There's no other answer. There's no other way. My way is the best way. We take that into our suffering and say, you know what? This is it for me. This is my life. Whatever, oftentimes, acutely that we're going through, we pinpoint it to that being the overwhelming sum of who we are and what we're going through and even oftentimes our identity. But when we do that, we lose the the picture of who God is in a macro level that God is still working and doing big things whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not. Yes, we have been living in a pandemic, but goodness, I don't know about you, but it's forced me to just slow down. And I really needed that. And yes, for the last couple of years, many of us, We've had our eyes opened, especially to what's happening in our society. We've been given no choice but to confess that we have a deep-seated issue in our country with racism, nationalism, a toxic level of evangelicalism. But thank God these conversations are happening, as hard as they are. Yes, we're living in a world that is plagued with poverty. We see that driving down West Seattle, White Center, downtown Seattle, Pioneer Square. We live in a world where we're we're plagued with poverty, human trafficking, genocides. And these things are absolutely detestable to God, and they should be absolutely detestable to us. And while I'm in no way diminishing any of these experiences, what if the story isn't over yet? We've been blinded by our own narrow, extreme, binary way of thinking. That we don't see that there might be a story that God is waiting to reveal or has yet to reveal. When I was a pastor in Bellevue several years ago before uh, Bethany the local Christian high school, Bellevue Christian High School, asked me if I would uh, teach their uh, 11th grade Bible class. Uh, and after I was saying no several times, I, they were desperate, so I said, okay, I got one semester. I'll teach one semester. I, I was still a pastor. It, I, it was, you know, I guess part of my job for the community. Uh, and so one semester turned into three semesters. Uh, that turned into three years uh, and I don't know why they trusted me to teach the young minds of America, but they did. Uh, but the thing that I'll never forget, and I was once there too, and perhaps if you're out of high school, you've experienced this too, where you look back in your high school life and you just feel like 
I don't want to say dramatic, but, I, but we haven't experienced the fullness of life yet to know that what we're going through right now while we were in high school wasn't really the end of the world as we thought. Because I remember students would come into this class, like just, you know, just flail into class and they'd say, Mr. Park, my life is over. And I, what's going on? And I remember particularly this one young lady says, got the guy's name, didn't text me back yesterday, Mr. Park. Oh, okay. Or someone, uh, you know, in class said, and this is before I knew what literally actually meant. Literally doesn't mean literally. Uh, But she would say, I literally died yesterday, Mr. Park. Well, but you're sitting here, so you, you literally didn't literally die. So it's good to know that literally doesn't actually mean literally, and not to sound too judgmental, uh, but oftentimes it, it was over what I would consider now trivial. And, and I wanted to oftentimes bite my tongue as a good teacher because the real advice I wanted to give these high school students is, hey, don't you worry, kids, it's going to get worse. But I know that that wasn't going to be helpful, so I didn't. The point is this, too often, whether you're in high school or in college or a full-grown adult or even older or whatever it is, the point is this, too often we allow our hopelessness, the negativity, the suffering, the pain, whatever we're going through, to absolutely consume our lives, give us a, a narrow vision of what else that God might be doing because we're so consumed with what we are experiencing right now at the current moment. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says this. He says, we can, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So what C.S. Lewis is trying to say is that for whatever reason, the problem of pain is this. Pain is always the loudest voice. But what we see in our text this morning in Job, what we just read, the kingdom of God gives us a different way to live, a different way to think, a different way to be. And Job gives us this picture of what theologians describe as the already and not yet. We are already living in the victory of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We are already living in the mercy and the grace of God. We are already living in a community where Christ is at the center. We are already living where the Holy Spirit is with us, and we can pray to the Spirit to move us, to heal us, to convict us, and yet we're not on the other side of heaven yet. And so things are not perfect. We do experience pain. We do experience suffering. We do experience loss. The already and not yet is about where there is, uh, where both grief and hope can coexist, where both uncertainty and trust 
can coexist, where sadness and joy can actually coexist, where both anger and compassion can coexist. And we forget that sometimes because we're so consumed with what C.S. Lewis says, the loudest voice of the suffering that's happening in our own lives. Here in Job 19, the, the text that we read, Job is responding to his friend, Bildad. Now, Bildad, out of all his friends, remember, uh, if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we're, we're talking about Job. And the plight of Job is this. At the beginning of Job, Job loses everything. He, he's he's uh, tested by, by Satan to prove that, God, that, that Job is actually loyal to God no matter what. And so, the, the, so Satan, the accuser, the Hasatan, says, okay, well then, let's take away Job's, his children. Let's take away his livestock. Let's take away even his own health. And yet at the end of the day, after all of that, Job still says, I will be faithful to God. And, and the remainder or in the middle of, of Job is about his friends trying to explain to Job why his life is so miserable. And the answers are actually not that good. In fact, not that theological and not that accurate. Most of them are saying, Job, the reason why you're experiencing this kind of suffering and this kind of loss is because you have been disobedient to God somehow. You have sinned. You have done something. Just admit it. Just confess it. Whatever it is, you've done it. Just repent. Just admit it. And Job, through and through the entire book is saying, no, I'm innocent of evil doing, of any wrongdoing. I have not sinned against God. I don't know why this is happening. For many of us, we could resonate with what Job is going through. But Bildad, and one of his three friends, was probably the harshest. He had no filter. He was rigid with his religion. He was self-righteous. He had no tact. You might have someone in your circle of friends that might might be this person. If you don't, it might be you. Who knows? And so Job in 19 verse 1 and 3 says this about his friends, particularly Bildad. He says this, how long will you, Bildad, torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. And so Job is like saying, Bildad, friends, just leave me alone. Leave me alone. If it hasn't been bad enough for me, I lost everything. My children, my livestock, my wealth, my resources, my influence, I lost it all. And to make matters worse, Job is saying, not only have I lost it all, it feels like I lost God too. Like God seems so far away. Have you ever felt that? God just feels so far away. That God has abandoned him. So he lost his family. He loses his, it felt betrayed by his friends. And now he feels betrayed by God. And he says this in uh, chapter 19, verse 7 through 11. He says, though I cry violence, I get no response. And he's talking about God. God is not responding to Job. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown of my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. Can you just imagine what Job is going through? In the midst of all that loss, 
We may not even understand the full poetry of what's happening in Job, but just you understand that Job is in pure mode of lament. God, where are you? God, are, do you consider me your enemy now? God, I've been praying because of all this violence that's been attacking me and all this. God, do you hear me? And so the next, or a few verses down in chapter 19, he says, he says this to his friends. Friends, have pity on me. My friends, have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? He's saying, friends, leave me alone. God's already punished me, punished me and now you're punishing me too? Now talk about the deep sense of hopelessness that Job is going through. Not only has Job lost everything, not only does he feel betrayed by his own friends, but he now feels betrayed by God, the same God that Job was faithful to from the very beginning, even when Job loses everything. And yet it's that same God that betrays him? Look, if anybody has a reason to say, that's it. This is my life. This is my plight. This is what my, my life is made out of. This suffering defines who I am. The mistakes that I've made defines who I am. If anyone has a reason to feel that way, it's Job. If anyone has a feeling, uh, the feeling that nothing can ever change, that there is no hope, that there's no way out, it, it's Job. If anyone has a reason to be that narrow-minded to be uh, possessing the, uh, the binary lens, it's Job. Nothing is going right for him. Why would he believe that nothing will ever go right? Why should he believe that God is still moving? He has a reason to say, this is it. This is my life. Then in verse 25, out of no, seemingly nowhere, Oh, when I, when I read this throughout the week, it brought tears to me. He says this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another how my heart yearns within me. With everything that Job is going through, out of nowhere, he can say, I know my Redeemer lives. There's two words I want us to pay attention to here. The first word is this. He says, I know. The Hebrew word for I know is this word yada, and the word yada here, it reflects this level of intimacy. In other places in the Old Testament, the word yada is translated as to choose. It's like a marriage. It's like a covenant. I've chosen you. It's that level of connection. I know this person, and I've chosen this person. Again, like a marriage, like a friendship, like family. Yada, there's, a, there's, there's several other words to, to know something or someone, to have information about something, just to know of. Yada is specific to intimacy and confidence. With every fiber in his body, Job knows, he yadas, that he has a redeemer. 
And the word redeemer in the Hebrew word is the word goel. And really, goel is defined as the word or phrase, the next of kin or a close relative. And the next of kin, especially in Israelite culture, had a lot of responsibility. Uh, one uh, Job expert, Job scholar, John Hartley, says this about goel. He says, in Israelite custom, the goel, the next of kin, refers to the ne- that this person guarantees the security and rights of his fellow kinsmen. There were specific situations that required the next of kin, the goel, to act on his brother's behalf. If a brother was murdered, the next of kin, the goel, had the responsibility to avenge his death. If a brother was taken into slavery or or, or captivity, the next of kin, the goel, had the responsibility to go free him. Whenever a brother was forced to sell property to pay off debt, the goel had the responsibility to pay off his debt. If a husband died and left his wife and children, the goel had the responsibility to provide for them. This is what Job meant when that he, in his confidence, he says, I know that I have a goel. I have a redeemer. Job is essentially saying, I know, I truly believe that even in the midst of all my suffering, of what I'm going through, that I have a goel. I have a redeemer that will fight for me, that will pursue me, that will defend me like a next of kin in Israelite culture. That this goel, this defender will protect me, that goel will, will go before me. And though I'm going through this suffering, Job is saying, my story is not over yet because I have a redeemer, a next of kin, essentially. I have a goel. You see, what Job has done well uh, to this point is this. Rather than speaking with absolutes, which if anyone has a reason to speak in absolutes, it was Job. My life is done. This is it. I lost everything. My children. Anyone has a reason to believe and think that it's Job. Yet, Job does not speak in those absolutes. Job speaks with the power of, I call it, and, A-N-D. He doesn't speak with absolutes. He speaks with the ands. Job knows how hard it is, and he knows that God is his help. Job knows that his friends have betrayed him, and that God is on his side. Job knows that he is angry and grieving over what happened to him, and he knows that there will be a redemption waiting for him. He knows that the story is tragic, and for him, the story isn't over. And this motif of and, of this paradox, of this tension, goes all the way into the New Testament where our redemption comes through the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, which is Jesus, and those who are made holy, which is the church, the believers, are of the same family. And so get this, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus uses the idea of the goel, the next of kin, the redeemer, and declares that he is our defender. Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus does what it takes to redeem us, to be our redeemer, the same type of redeemer that Job was talking about in chapter 19, the word goel. Like a true goel, Jesus goes through everything Job went through, all the pain and the sorrow. Jesus experienced his own violence. Jesus experienced his own betrayal of his friends. Jesus experienced his own lament. He even cried, God, where are you? He even asked God the Father to say, if it's not too much, would you take this cup from me? The the, the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was about to be crucified on the cross, he says to God, will you take this from me? Jesus experienced the suffering that Job had experienced. Jesus experiences the suffering that we have experienced. Jesus has gone before us to be our redeemer, to be our goel. And ultimately, Jesus did so on the cross by paying with his life. And yes, he resurrected on the third day. The question is this, what if we practice more of the art of the and? The Christian story is all about this beautiful and wonderful paradox that we know that there is death, this is the Christian story, that there is death on a cross and there is resurrection. The Christian story says there is death in our physical life and there is eternal life. As we go into Lent, we know that there is Good Friday, the day of sorrow, of mourning, of grief, and there is Easter, the day of life and celebration. And my encouragement to you is this, whether it's today or throughout the week, I would invite you as a practice to name whatever you're going through, no matter what suffering you're experiencing, whether it's because of the fate of the world or or this country or our city or our community or what's happening in your own life, name what that experience is, then seal it with even verbally, even out loud by saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know what's happening in Ukraine is tragic and painful and sad, and it makes me downright angry, and I know my Redeemer lives. I know that we're going through this pandemic, and I'm experiencing isolation, mental health, my kids, masks, and being polarized with all of that, and, and, and I want this just to go away, and I know my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm experiencing a, a broken heart through a loss of a relationship, through conflict with my children, through conflict with others, or whatever it is, and I know my Redeemer lives. Another Job scholar, Gustavo Gutierrez, says this about Job. In this passage that we just read, Job makes an act of faith that seems to lack any human basis or understanding, yet proclaims with his deepest conviction. I love that. In this passage, Job makes an act of faith that seems uh, to lack any understanding or human basis. There's times where we're experiencing suffering And we see this, and it feels like there's nothing we can do. It feels like there's nothing that can change our scenario or our life circumstances. And maybe partly that is true. 
But I love what uh, Gutierrez says. He says, but what Job does, he takes an act of faith that defies all human understanding, that defies all logic and reasoning, and he goes with his conviction to say that no matter what I'm going through, I know my Redeemer lives. That is Job's conviction in the deepest part of his soul because guess what? He knows not just knows about, not just read about, not just heard on stage, not just watched on TV, not just saw on the news. He intimately knows with the covenant he has with God, the relationship he has with God, that God is his redeemer. And may that be so in our own stories. And I'll just end with this. I'll have to ask the team to come back as we enter into a season uh, a minute of reflection. He says, after this, Job lived, and this is the end of Job in Job chapter 42. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died. And listen to this. He died an old man and full of years. In other words, he lived a full life. Did he suffer? Yes. Did he have loss? Yes. Did he have pain? Yes. Did he experience betrayal? Yes. And he experienced the redemption of God. Yes, of children, of land. But he experienced God's redemptive story for his life. He embraced the power of and. And even though his life was filled with mystery and pain, he lived a full life. He didn't allow his suffering to take over. He didn't allow to be, for himself to be narrow-minded. He lived a good life. And as we enter, in this, enter into communion, I hope you grab one of these. If you didn't, if you can raise your hand. Uh, Hannah can get you a communion cup. We have two, one, two, three, four. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, remember he went to the cross to give of his life. Keep your hands raised if you need a communion cup. And he experienced the and, the death and resurrection on the third day. And because of Christ's work on the cross, we can be confident and know and trust that Jesus is our Goel. Jesus is our Redeemer. And so again, this week, your practice is to name what your pain is and then say, and I know my Redeemer Lives. How do we know? Because Jesus proved it on the cross. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. So as one, as a community, may we take this bread together. And then he took the cup. And he says, take this cup in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was shed 
for you. Again, as our Redeemer, as our Goel, let's take this together. Let's pray as we end in worship. God, thank you that you are our Redeemer. Jesus, you've experienced this life. You have empathy because you know what it feels like to suffer, to feel betrayal, to experience pain. And you did so in order to be close to us. And so, God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray, and it sounds audacious, but I pray for what's happening in Ukraine. I pray for the families that are divided. I pray for our politics where we're all feeling polarized from the other God, I pray for all of that. May your spirit intervene. And may we know in the midst of that, our Redeemer lives. And you as our Redeemer will intervene as our defender, as our protector, as any good Goel would do. May we have faith in that. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.